Xerxes. And the rabbinic uh, history tells us that King Solomon was the author of Ecclesiastes, the wisest king who ever lived. And he writes in verse, Ecclesiastes 3, verse 12 to 13, I perceive that there is nothing better for them than to be joyful and to do good as long as they live. Also that everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in all his toil. This is God's gift to man. We are called to take pleasure in our toil, in our work. This is God's gift to us. In fact, in the New Testament, in Ephesians chapter 2, uh, verses 8 to 10, the Apostle Paul writes to the church in Ephesus and says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It's the gift of God, not a result of work, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. We are saved by grace alone through faith in Christ alone, but we weren't simply saved to do nothing. We were saved for good works, as the Apostle Paul writes to the church in Ephesus. We are saved to do the work of God here on this earth. In fact, if you'll remember the final words of Jesus before he, the resurrected Jesus, before he ascends into heaven, he tells his disciples, all of us, he gives us a commission, a job, a task. He says, go and make disciples of all nations, baptized in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you, and lo, I will be with you always to the very end of the age. Jesus' final words to us was to, was to go, to do, to, to work. In fact, if we go to the very first chapter of the Bible, Genesis chapter one, the story of creation, we will see that we were created in the very image of God, and our God, in his essence, is a, is a working God. For in Genesis uh, chapter one, God works, he speaks and he creates the heavens and the earth, the animals, the plants, and all of us. And on the sixth day, he creates us in his very image. And we read that on the seventh day, he rested. But before he rests on the seventh day, on that sixth day after creating us, he gives us a job. We read about it in Genesis chapter one, verse 28. And God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. And have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. I really like the way Eugene Peterson translates Genesis chapter 1 verse 28 in his uh, message. It says, prosper, reproduce, fill the earth, take charge. Be responsible for fish in the sea and birds in the air for every living thing that moves on the face of the earth. As the crown of God's creation, who are creating the very image of God, God has entrusted his creation to us. We are the chief stewards of God's stuff. So what are we doing with the time and the talents and the treasures that God has given to us? Are we putting them to work to the glory of his name? You know, my favorite parable in all the Bible is actually found in Matthew 25, I think as an old finance major, I really like the uh, idea of investing and getting twice back what you uh, invested. It's known as the parable of the talents. It's a story of a master who has three servants. He gives one uh, servant one talent. To another servant, he gives two talents. And to another servant, he gives five talents. Now, talents back then were a measure of money. One talent was worth 6,000 denarii. One denarius was worth one day's wage. So the servant who was given just the one talent was given over 16 years worth of wages, plenty of resources to do something with. Well, the master goes off, and and sadly, the servant who was given the one talent, as the story goes, does nothing with what God gave him, the master, and he buries it in the ground because he's afraid he might lose it. 
But the other two servants, the one who was given the two and the one who was given five, well, they know the heart of the master. So immediately, at once, they put the talents to work and, and they're able to double what they were originally given. So that when the master comes home, he goes to the servant who made two and made two more and he, and he says the same verbal blessing to him and to the servant uh, who was given five, who makes five more. We find it in Matthew 25, verse 23. It's the exact same verbal blessing. He says, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. These servants put their talents to work, the master's talents to work, the master's money to work. And he said, well done, good and faithful servant. I pray that at the end of our days, God might look at us and say, well done, good and faithful servant. Unfortunately, of course, as the story goes, the servant who was given the one talent and buries it in the ground has to give an account with what he did with the master's money. And the master ultimately condemns him as wicked and lazy. He is cast out into the outer darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. The message of the parable is very clear. We've got to do something. Don't be lazy. Put the talents you've been given to work. Reminds me of that bumper sticker I saw several years ago. It said, Jesus is coming back. Look busy. <laughs> we're going to have to give an account with what we're doing. I want to be sitting watching TV when Jesus comes back. I want to be doing the work of the kingdom, right? You see, this parable in Matthew 25 is actually this parable of judgment. Is, well, it's a parable that is told in response to a question that the disciples have in Matthew 24 about the last days, about the final judgment. On the final judgment day, we will all have to give an account of what we did with the time, the talents, and the treasures that God has entrusted to us. Now, a a talent in the parable is an amount of money. But for us, a talent represents anything that is limited, like money, time, or abilities. What are we doing with the time, the talents, and the treasures that God has entrusted to us while we're here on this earth? Financially, are we investing in the work of God's kingdom by giving a full 10%, a a full tithe of what we make to the work of God's church? In fact, we can see from the earliest church that they often gave well above a tithe. Tithing is the beginning of generosity, not necessarily the destination. The earliest church gave well above a tithe. They weren't limited to just 10%. That's why our church and our finance committee and session have approved a budget that gives 16% of its operating budget to local and global missions. We want to be a generous church because we know that we serve a generous God. How are we using the treasures that God has given to us? How are we using the time that God has given to us? After all, there's only so much time in a day, only so many days in a week, only so many weeks in a year, only so many years in a lifetime. What are we doing with the time that God has entrusted to us here on this earth? How can we make sure that we are making the most of the time that God has given to us? How can we make sure that we are moving from simply success to significance in our lives? Because most of us, if we think about our weeks, most of us who are working spend most of the majority of our time at work, 40 to 50 hours a week we're at work. How can we make sure we're making the most of that time at work to bring glory and honor to God, to to help point others to Him? To find out how we can move from success to significance in our places of work, please open your Bibles to Colossians chapter 3, verse 22. Colossians chapter 3, verse 22, it may be found on page 1253 of your Red Pew Bible, Colossians chapter 3, verse 22.
But before I read God's word, let's call upon his spirit again to guide us in the reading and preaching of his holy word. Please join me as you pray. Gracious and loving God, we thank you that you inspired Paul to put pen to paper to write to the church in Colossae, to write to the households there, to speak to them a word of direction, a word of truth. We pray, O Lord, that as we read your word this morning, that you might speak to us, that we might, by your spirit, see how we can apply it to our lives today. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be acceptable in your holy sight. Through your son's precious name we pray and all God's people said, amen. Colossians chapter three, beginning with verse 22. Listen to the word of the Lord. Bond servants, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by the way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. For the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there is no partiality. Masters, treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. Here ends the reading of God's word as the prophet Isaiah tells us the grass withers and the flower fades. But the word of our Lord stands forever. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Bond servants, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with the sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Now the Greek word for bond servants here can also be translated as slaves. The ESV has uh, decided to be uh, more, given us a more palatable translation of that word and, and, and has put it down as bond servants. Because here in the 21st century, we don't have slaves today. Now we, we may feel at times like our boss or managers are slave drivers, but we're not slaves. I mean, slavery was uh, abolished in this country by the Emancipation Proclamation in 1863 by Abraham Lincoln, thanks be to God. In fact, if you look at the history of civil rights and the abolition of slavery around the globe, Christians are often at the forefront of making sure that slavery is abolished because we know from the Bible that, well, that God does not celebrate slavery in any way. In fact, Paul writes in Colossians chapter three, verse 11, here in the church, there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. Within the body of Christ, we are all sinners saved by grace. No one is better than anyone else. The social, racial, economic barriers that tend to divide people in the world don't exist, should not exist within the body of Christ. We're all children of the Most High God through faith in Christ. We are all one in Christ, for Christ is all and in all. But in the first century, when Paul writes to the church in Colossae, Uh, Colossians, uh, well, slavery was very well established. Some historians estimate that 30% of the people living in the Roman Empire in the first century were slaves. Most of the slaves in the first century were descendants of slaves, and their ancestors originally became slaves through war. When a country would conquer another country, often the members of the conquered country would become slaves, become slave labor. And so in the Greco-Roman world, a large segment of the population were slaves, And most biblical scholars believe that the majority of the church in Colossae was made up of slaves. 
In fact, the letter to the Colossians is delivered to the church by Onesimus and Tychicus. Onesimus was the slave of Philemon, a member of the church in Colossae. If you read the letter that Paul writes to Philemon, that's also in our New Testament, you can see that Paul exhorts Philemon no longer to treat Onesimus as a slave, but now as a brother in Christ. Slaves were viewed as property in the first century, so they had very few rights. So in light of that historical reality, what Paul writes in Colossians chapter 3, verse 23 to 24 is radical for his day. For Paul writes, whatever you do, he's talking to the slaves, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. In the first century, the idea of a slave receiving an inheritance was crazy. Slaves were the inheritance. They were a part of the estate and they would be passed on from one family member to the next. The idea that the slaves would have a right to an inheritance was beyond anything they could imagine. But Paul encourages the slaves to know that by working hard and giving a God-honoring effort every day, knowing that it's Jesus that they're ultimately serving, they will receive an inheritance, an eternal inheritance from the Lord. And if a slave in the first century can know that they will receive an eternal inheritance from the Lord by working hard, how much more should we know that we're going to receive an eternal inheritance from the Lord by giving a God-honoring effort at our places of work? Notice that Paul encourages the slaves in Colossae to obey their master and work hard, not by the way of eye service as people pleasers, but with a sincerity of heart. Some employees today only work when the boss is looking, right? When the manager's watching, I'm working hard, but when he's not, I'm at the water cooler hanging out, talking, socializing, doing whatever. When the boss isn't there, are we working hard? Because the the fact is, our boss, Jesus, is always there, always watching, always encouraging us to give a God-honoring effort. What does it look like to give a God-honoring effort in our places of work today? In 1996, after graduating from Trinity University with a degree in finance and economics and a minor in Spanish, I took a job as a consultant with Pricewaterhouse. At the time, it was one of the big six accounting firms. Uh, Later, we joined with uh, Coopers and Library and became PricewaterhouseCoopers. Now there's only four accounting firms. But at the time, we were one of the big six accounting firms. And my first project was very demanding. I remember that if you put in a 12-hour day, they would bring dinner to the office so that you could continue working. So if you worked until seven, all of a sudden dinner would be there and you would continue, could eat a quick meal and continue working. And I, for eight months, I rarely went home at night. We were working so much. It was insane how much I had to work. I was working 50 to, six hours, 50 to 60 hours a week. Uh, I still went to worship on Sundays, but Monday through Friday, man, I was at work almost all the time. And at the end of my first year, I was actually in the top 1% of billable hours for a level one consultant. That's really not that great of a <laughs> distinction. At the time, I, I remember my manager was like, man, you're in the top 1%, congratulations. And I'm like, man, I have no life. <laughs> this is not good. And I got a bonus, and I even got a raise on top of the bonus, and I got promoted, and, and we had a nice dinner at Ruth Chris Steakhouse to celebrate the end of our project, and, and it was great, but at the end of it all, I said, man, was it worth it? Was it worth it? You know, God wants us to be diligent, but workaholics don't honor God because... Work becomes their God. Even God rested on the seventh day. Bob Buford in his best-selling book, Halftime, Moving from Success to Significance, shares that despite 
achieving great financial success in the television industry, he was constantly burdened by the question, what might I be losing with all of this gaining? What might I be losing by all of this gaining? Bob Buford had to ask himself, as he gives all of his time and his energy and his strength to his job, to his business, to his work, what is he losing in all that he was gaining? He recognized that he was losing time with his family and his friends and his faith community. He was losing an opportunity to influence others in other spheres and different areas of life. While I appreciated the promotion, the raise, and the bonus, I knew that I wasn't making the most of the time, the talents, and the treasures that God had given to me. In fact, I had joined Highland Park Presbyterian Church Recently, we took a spiritual gift survey as a part of the new members class. And if you've never taken the spiritual gift survey, Murray has one that you can take. It can help you discover what are your spiritual gifts. As I took my spiritual gift survey as a new member at Highland Park Presbyterian Church, I learned that my spiritual gifts are knowledge, faith, teaching, and evangelism. Those are my top four gifts. And to get a little balance in my life, I decided it was time to put those gifts to work Specifically, with the church, I led a college Bible study with a bunch of students from SMU. And then for my own spiritual health, I went to, started going to a Bible study on Wednesday evenings at the church. I started using my vacation to go on mission trips to places like Merida, Mexico, Mendenhall, Mississippi, and Havana, Cuba. When I was a consultant, a favorite topic of conversation at the lunch hour or at happy hours was always to talk about what you did on vacation or what you did that weekend. On weekends, I started making the effort to hang out with the singles ministry of my church because at the time I was single, and we would often spend our Saturdays, you know, helping with a Habitat for Humanity build, like we're about to send a team to Colorado Springs to do here, or we would spend time in, in West Dallas refurbishing some homes, or we would spend time in downtown Dallas feeding the homeless. And half of my vacations were spent on mission trips. Have you ever been on a, a mission trip before? It's, it's a powerful time to, to give all of your time to help serve someone else. I know that we sent some teams to Houston this year, two teams to Houston to help with Hurricane Harvey relief. We've got another team going to Colorado Springs. If you keep your eyes open, you'll see that there are constantly opportunities for us to go on mission trips to serve as God's hands and feet. And you don't just have to, to leave Amarillo to do that. You know, we had a day of service not long ago with Snack Pack for Kids. We're gonna have one in June. The first week of June is, I mean, sorry, the last week of June is always a, a combined in-town mission trip with the four Amarillo churches. Yes, it was a powerful witness to my coworkers that how I spent my time away from work was sent, spent in ministry to others. In fact, if you're retired and you're not working, you're done with a paying job, boy, what opportunities you have, what time you have to give to help serve others, whether it be a part of this church or in the greater community of Amarillo or around the world. Of course, for those of us who are still working, most of our time is spent, our awake time is spent at work. So how can we make sure that we we work in such a way that honors God specifically? I believe the answer is actually found in something that Paul writes right before he instructs the bond servants or the slaves In Colossians chapter 3, verses 12 to 17, Paul writes this to the church in Colossae. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. 
And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. When the stress at work gets high, and inevitably wherever you work, stress will get high, are we easily frustrated or do we remain calm, peaceful, thankful in the midst of the storm? My first immediate supervisor at Price Waterhouse was a very intense man. Uh, when things got tense with weekly deadlines, he would often erupt. He sometimes yelled at people. It was pretty inappropriate. And I knew he was Baptist because he went to Baylor University, but he wasn't acting like a Baptist, right? And I was like, man, brother, you need to work on your sanctification just a little bit, you know? Spend some time in the Word. Be still. No, he's God, you know? Calm down. But uh, he had gone through a, a recent divorce, and he was really struggling with his identity, and, and he, he was allowing work to become his identity. And when we allow work to become our identity, our success or failure at work to become our identity, then we've made work an idol. And that's not good. No, our identity is... Paul lets us know in Galatians 2.20 is found in Christ. He says, I have been crucified with Christ. I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Now, if we'll keep our hearts and minds focused on Christ, that our identity is found in him and what he has already done for us, then our success or failure at works won't define us. We will have peace in the midst of the storms. When things don't go our way, we will still know that that we were saved by grace through faith, that no one can take us out of the loving, eternal hand of our Savior. It's if we allow work to become our ultimate identity, our life is out of balance. Because the truth is that no matter how hard we may work, work is not always going to go well. We live in a a fallen and, and broken world. If you remember in Genesis chapter one, God creates all of creation And as I shared just a minute ago, God gives humanity the job of serving as his chief steward of his stuff. Humanity was doing great until Adam and Eve committed that original sin of eating the forbidden fruit. And when they did, sin came into the world and all of creation was corrupted. And God tells Abraham that as a part of his punishment, now his hard work will often lead to thorns and thistles. We read in Genesis chapter 3, 17 to 19. Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. And you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For you, for out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. God tells Adam that because he disobeyed God that oftentimes his work will produce thorns and thistles, not fruit. And any farmer in West Texas can tell you that no matter how good of a farmer you may be, no matter how advanced the agricultural sciences may be, sometimes the crops don't grow like you hope they will. The same is true in any industry, no matter what business you're in. Business plans don't always go according to plan. They're not always successful. Patients don't always respond positively to the drugs that the doctor has prescribed to them. 
No matter how good a lawyer you may be, judges and juries don't always side your way. Students don't always learn the lessons you try to teach them. It doesn't matter how hard you may try, it doesn't matter how good you may be, sometimes our work will produce thorns and thistles. So when things don't go our way, how do we respond? Because I believe that often makes the biggest difference. While my immediate supervisor at Price Waterhouse was often uptight, the partner that I reported to was very calm and cold-headed. In fact, I remember one night, um, I stayed up all night to make sure that a project was done on time or by the next day, and I was literally leaving the office at 8 a.m. as he was walking in, and I said, Gary, we finished it. It's all done. I'm heading home to go and get some sleep. He said, oh, Howard, thanks so much for your incredible effort. Man, I, I really, please take the next couple of days off as comp days, you know. And Hey, why don't you take your girlfriend out for dinner on, a, on us? Well, that'll be just a way to celebrate. And I said, oh, thanks, Gary. And then I was walking away and thinking, wait, I don't have a girlfriend. I don't have time for a girlfriend. <laughs> I was working too much to have a girlfriend. I hadn't met Sarah yet. I, and so what I ended up doing was taking a few guys out. It was kind of fun. But uh, Gary was a great partner for our firm. He is high up in as he was in the company. He knew everybody who was working underneath him by name. He was a family man who was active in his church. He went to a, a Church of Christ church, and it showed. Now, Gary didn't hand out tracts at work. He didn't talk about Jesus all the time, but he lived as a faithful follower of Jesus, treating others the way that he would like to be treated if they were in his position. He was a kind, humble, meek, and patient as Paul writes about in Colossians 3. If things don't go as planned and our team missed a deadline despite all of our efforts, which actually happened twice, we missed a deadline, Gary had offered encouragement rather than condemnation and let us know that he would talk to the client and explain what happened and and, and in honor and gratitude for his grace, man, we, we put in a double effort the next week to make sure that we met next week's deadline. Gary seemed to know what the Bible teaches. The work's not always going to go as planned, no matter how hard we may try. People make mistakes. Deadlines are missed. Things don't always go according to plan. Sometimes we produce thorns and thistles rather than fruit. But he always offered us grace, encouraging us to do better next time. In the summer of 1995, I worked... uh, with a venture capitalist firm in San Antonio, and the owner of the firm once told me, Howard, mistakes are learning opportunities. We should, we should thank God for them and learn from them. When we make a mistake at work, how do we respond? Are we defensive, trying to explain why it happened? Or do we take responsibility and try to learn from it? When someone we supervise makes a mistake, do we condemn them Or do we try to encourage them to learn from the mistakes so that they might do better next time? Notice what Paul writes to the masters in Colossae. In Colossians chapter four, verse one, he says, masters, treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. The first century Greco-Roman world, slaves were viewed as property. They didn't have any rights. Slave owners often mistreated their slaves because they were accountable to no one on how they treated their property. But Paul reminds the masters in Colossae that we all work for Jesus. We're all going to have to give an account for how we worked for him. How did we treat the people who have been placed under our care? Do we treat others with kindness, compassion, and patience so they can 
do all that God created them to do, to be all that God has made them to be, to reach their God-given potential? Are we generous towards our employees when we can be generous? Are we creating a work culture that encourages life balance where we, where we give God an, a God-honoring effort Monday through Friday, but we also encourage people to rest, to take time off, not to burn the candle at both ends, to know for sure whether or not if we're pleasing God with the work we do Monday through Friday and the way that we manage and treat others, we need to pray and we need to read this. As Paul states in Colossians chapter 3, verse 16 to 17, he says, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. When I was a consultant, I always had a Bible on my desk. And when I was working uh, on a program or whatever I had to work on, I would have my headphones on often and listening to a Christian CD so that I could be reminded that this job is a gift. As hard as it may be at times, this job is a gift and I am thankful for this job that God has given to me and I want to give a God-honoring effort each and every day. Guided by his word, the Lord will show us how we can honor him in our work. That's how we move from success to significance in the workplace, reminding ourselves that ultimately we work for Jesus and we serve Jesus because he came here to serve us. As Jesus says in Mark 10, chapter, Mark 10, verse 45, for the Son of Man came not to this earth to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. In gratitude for Jesus' great service to us, may we seek to give a a God-honoring effort each and every day so that we might point others to his great service. Yes, we honor Jesus by doing it all in the name of Jesus, to the glory of his name. That's what it means to work as a Christian, to honor Jesus by doing it well in gratitude for all that Jesus has already done for us. Let's pray. God, I thank you so much for the word of instruction that you give to the church in Colossae, to bondservant slaves and to masters. And Lord, I know there, we don't have slaves and we don't have masters, but we have employees and employers. And Lord Jesus, we recognize as we read your word that ultimately you are our boss. Then we say Jesus is Lord, we mean that you are Lord of all, every hour of the day. And we want to serve you, God. We want to give an a God-honoring effort each and every day. So Lord, help us to take the time we need to read your word, to pray, and guide us each day that we might be a witness of your love for us. That just as you came to serve us, help us to serve others in gratitude for all that you've given us. We pray this in the strong and precious name of your son who